Hey folks, Ben Wickler here. You are listening to The Good Fight. A quick note before the episode begins, what you're about to hear was released on Tuesday, February 3rd, which was my 34th birthday, and which was also two days before the deadline for the Kickstarter campaign to raise this show's budget for the year 2015. It was a very intense moment for us, so you're going to hear me make the case for supporting the show. I can give away the ending right now, though. We made it. Thank you so much to everyone who chipped in to support The Good Fight. Uh, if you would still like to chip in, go to thegoodfight.fm slash support. So again, the next thing you'll hear is me from about a week ago making the case for The Good Fight's Kickstarter. Stay with us, and again, thanks for the support. This is a tipping point moment for The Good Fight. We're running a Kickstarter to raise this year's budget. Our goal is $100,000, and right now, as I say these words into the microphone, we have $30,000 left to go, and two days to raise it. The deadline is Thursday night, so I'm asking for your help. Our mission with The Good Fight is to tell real-life David versus Goliath stories from the behind-the-slingshot point of view. We think that the stories that we tell, the heroes we lift up, define who we become. But the thing is, none of these fights are actually won by individuals. It's always a bunch of us taking action together. Today's episode is a story like that. It's one person telling it, but it's the story of a movement. This whole show, really, is about collective action. And that's what it's going to take to keep this show going. We have huge plans, but they're basically in your hands. If we fall short of our goal, then everything we've raised so far disappears. So I'm asking you to join our Kickstarter. I'm asking you to back The Good Fight right now at thegoodfight.fm slash ks. At that page, by the way, you can watch the video and see what our studios and team and I look like in real life. Thegoodfight.fm slash ks or tgf.fm slash ks for short. We have until 11.59 p.m. on Thursday, February 5th. I'm incredibly grateful for your support. Thank you. Today's Good Fight is about a moment and a movement and a vision, all connected by three words. Black lives matter. 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 Today, we're going to try to answer a question. Why black lives matter? Why that slogan? Black lives matter seems so obviously true, so self-evident, that at first it seems incredibly weak. Like, who wouldn't agree with that? And yet... To some ears, typically white ears, it sounds insulting, as in, who are you to accuse me of thinking black lives don't matter? And for some people, apparently, it sounds like the protesters are saying that lives that aren't black don't matter. Everyone's been saying black lives matter, and they do, mm -hmm. but all lives matter. Saying black lives ma matter imply that white lives don't, correct? Okay, so just... Why does black life only matter? Those clips were from Fox News, Fox News, and Glenn Beck, who used to be on Fox News. Needless to say... All of those people don't get it. But if you do want to get it, you actually have to go right to the moment when Black Lives Matter started, and then trace the whole arc of the movement that Black Lives Matter has come to represent. Today, we're going to hear the whole story from the inside of how it began, why it blew up, why it matters, why Black Lives Matter matters, directly from the woman who created it, Alicia Garza, who coined the phrase and who co-founded the organizing campaign that helped spawn this movement in the first place. 
why Black Lives Matter emerged as the uniting rallying cry for the political igniting of a rising generation. That is the story today, as episode 40 of The Good Fight starts now. But first, something brand new here on The Good Fight, our first ever underwriting spot. Now, as you probably know, The Good Fight is also supported by MoveOn.org Political Action, where I serve as the Washington director, and which notes that this is not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. MoveOn pays my salary. It's up to us to raise the funds to pay the rest of the staff. And that's where the Kickstarter comes in, and as part of that, our first experiment with ads. Our goal is to make ads you actually want to hear, promoting things that we actually believe in. But we also always want to be upfront with you about what's an ad and what's not. So if you hear this music, it's an ad. A special thanks to Alex Bloomberg and his crew at Gimlet Media for this idea, and to associate producer Zach Young for the original composition. Okay, here it is. If you are addicted to Fox News Channel, you might be shocked by the title of a new book by Nancy Altman and Eric Kingsen. It's called Social Security Works, Why Social Security Isn't Going Broke and How Expanding It Will Help Us All. Now, why is your book called Social Security Works? Because the program works remarkably well. Ah, were you worried about giving away the punchline in the title? No, we want to give away the punchline in the title because <laughs> we spend the rest of the book explaining why it works and why we should be expanding it. If there were one chapter in the book that you just wish that every voter in America would read, which one would it be? Chapter 10, which is called The Conventional Wisdom is Just Plain Wrong. And it goes through every soundbite you've ever heard. And, and we very carefully, with facts and figures, decimate every one of those. Nancy and Eric are the co-chairs of an organization called, brace yourself, Social Security Works. You can learn more at socialsecurityworks.org. There you go. The very first Good Fight underwriting spot. If you are interested in sponsoring a spot on The Good Fight, go to thegoodfight.fm slash ads. That's thegoodfight.fm slash ads. Oh, and by the way, to learn more about the battle to defend and expand Social Security and the amazing work of Social Security Works, check out episode 13 of The Good Fight, available wherever fine podcasts are downloaded from, or at thegoodfight.fm slash 13. And now for today's epic story. If you go to google.com slash trends, you can type in a phrase and see a little graph of how much people searched for it over time. And if you search for Black Lives Matter, what you see is a graph that's basically a flat line, nothing happening, and then a couple of little bumps, and then a huge spike, like almost straight up, in November 2014, after the grand jury failed to indict the police officers who killed Michael Brown and then Eric Garner. That's when most people heard about it. But in fact, the phrase was actually invented a lot earlier, on July 13th, 2013, the day that a different jury handed down its decision in a different case. I remember that I was actually waiting for the, the verdict to come down. This is Alicia Garza, today's guest. She's an organizer and activist based in Oakland, California. And that particular day, I was at a bar with a friend, and we were having drinks, and 
you know, speculating about what we thought the verdict might be, what we thought the outcome might be. In the circuit court of the 18th Judicial Circuit in and for Seminole County, Florida, State of Florida versus George Zimmerman, verdict, we the jury find George Zimmerman not guilty. So say we all four person. It just got quiet. It, it felt like we all collectively felt a gut punch. I started thinking about my, my baby brother, and he's not really a baby anymore. He's 25, just one of the sweetest people you would ever meet. And he lives in a predominantly white suburban community, and he's a six-foot-tall black man. And Trayvon could have been my brother. You know, I remember also feeling enraged and really profoundly sad. When I looked around me, there were a lot of other black people around me. I was seeing almost like our collective shape just feel really defeated. So I'm sitting next to four or five other people and we're all on our phones and we're, you know, interacting online, but we're also interacting with each other. And this is at the bar? This is at the bar, yeah. You know, I I spend a lot of time on Facebook, (laughs) like many other people my age. Like all of us. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I was scrolling through my timeline to see what my community was saying. There was a lot of kind of speculation about what did Trayvon do in order to put himself into a position of danger, rather than um, a a more fundamental question, right, which is uh, what could push Uh, someone like George Zimmerman to kill a 16-year-old child. Juror B-76, is this your verdict? Yes. Juror B-37, is this your verdict? Yes. You know, folks saying things like, well, we knew that that this justice system was never going to provide justice for Trayvon, and that's just kind of the way it is. And so what we need to do is X, Y, and Z. You know, we need better parenting in black communities. We need more education. But all of those responses were really attacking black people as if we have some kind of pathology. So I'm sitting there with friends and, and, and we're talking and, and you know, I, I just started saying stuff on Facebook. And one of the things that I said was, it's really important for us as a community to stop pathologizing ourselves and to really investigate what are the conditions under which these things can happen. You know, black people, I love us. I love you. We matter. Black lives matter. And my close friend, Patrice Colors, she was also online at the same time. And, and she saw that and she reposted it and shared it. And then she put a hashtag in front of it. The story of how that phrase went from Alicia's Facebook wall to the front pages of newspapers and network TV all over the country is pretty amazing. But before we get to it, I want to touch on this point that Alicia made when we talked to her. To overgeneralize a bit, white people have a tendency to assume that the phrase Black Lives Matter is addressed to them, either in general or to police officers specifically. That's definitely not how it began. This really did start as a a love letter to, to black people. And it was really a cry for us to say, let's stop self-pathologizing and let's start getting active together in our own defense and in support of each other. What is also true about Black Lives Matter is that it is a call more broadly to our society. And it's really a counterpoint 
to systemic racism, which is rooted in anti-blackness. This isn't about people being mean to each other. There are many instances of prejudice, and, and that's not what we're fighting. What we're talking about is the multiple ways in which black communities are at the losing end of almost every disparity that you can think of, whether it's employment, whether it's wages, whether it's level of organization, whether it's related to questions of gender in the workplace, whether it's related to health access, education, anything you can think of, black folks are at the losing end. For Garza, the murder of Trayvon Martin and the acquittal of George Zimmerman wasn't about racism at the individual level. It wasn't about what was going through George Zimmerman's mind. It was about all the layers and decades of injustice that made that moment, the moment that Zimmerman moved his finger a tiny bit and killed Trayvon Martin, that made that moment possible. And she saw those layers in an extraordinarily vivid way because of something that had happened to her as a preteen. I grew up in San Rafael in the Canal District, which is a very low-income, mostly black and brown area in Marin County. Went to elementary school there. And I do remember actually changing schools when I was in sixth grade and moving to Tiburon, one of the wealthiest towns in the entire world. (laughs) I was one of maybe three or four black students in the entire school. We had Ski Week, which I had never heard of before I got there. Which, <laughs> which is, you know, a week off so that parents can take their families skiing, right? And they don't have to miss school. Like, it sounds like you just went from one world to another. I did. I absolutely did. After years of struggling financially, Alicia's parents had found their footing with a small business selling antiques. In seventh grade, in this new school, in history class, we had to do some show and tell. And, you know, my dad thought it would be really cool if I brought a bayonet from the Revolutionary War to history class. And everybody else thought that was real cool. But when that is real cool. now that I think back on it, I'm like, I can't believe I brought a bayonet to school and like lived to tell the story. Right. Especially in the that current condition, to like a rich white school. Totally. Right. 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 But if I had done that at the school that I came from, you know, it would have been bad news for me. The experience of those two disparities really solidified for me that there are some things underneath uh, why some people have and some people don't. This realization of the impact of social structures on the lives of individuals is something a lot of people don't see. It's something a lot of powerful people don't want us to see. Listen to this speech that Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker gave at a conservative conference a few weeks ago. In America, the opportunity is equal for each and every one of us, but in America, The ultimate outcome is up to each and every one of us individually. Starting in middle school, Alicia knew that this just wasn't true. It wasn't actually about your skill or um, how hard you worked, right? Some of it was just about the family that you grew up in and the access that you have. Mostly it's about the chances that you get in life that are based on gender. They're based on your race. They're based on your nationality. Um, And that, you know, I learned over time that there's things that we can do about that. My parents were like, I want you to be a lawyer or an award-winning writer. And and so I always joke with people and say that my parents were grooming me to be Condoleezza Rice. And then at some point I defected, (laughs) right? And said, no, that's not the path for me. (laughs) After college, Alicia became a community organizer in Oakland, going door to door and working with low-income families. 
By 2013, she was in the job she holds today, the Special Projects Coordinator for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And by the way, that is an amazing group. You can hear their whole story on The Good Fight, episode 17 at thegoodfight.fm slash 17, featuring the amazing Ai-jen Poo, who just published a terrific book and who put us in touch with Alicia. Thank you, Ai-jen. Anyway, back to the story. Alicia and her co-founders didn't just come up with the phrase Black Lives Matter. They came up with a whole campaign and built a community online and off that helped drive activism across the country. Patrice and her team actually did a protest into Beverly Hills on Rodeo Drive, and they brought signs and and banners that said Black Lives Matter, and they were really beautiful, incredible images. And then, of course, we saw how in Brooklyn, there were thousands of people who marched across the Brooklyn Bridge carrying signs that said Black Lives Matter. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, we actually saw a episode of Law and Order SVU, which is one of my favorite shows, I confess. <laughs> <laughs> they did a mashup of what happened with Paula Dean and the case of Trayvon Martin. And there's a protest scene and the images in the protest are all Black Lives Matter. God was just a kid in a hoodie, wrong place, wrong time, wrong skin. When something shows up on a Law & Order episode, you know it's entered the national conversation. But Black Lives Matter didn't stay there. As time passed, most of the national media moved on. And then, in August, Ferguson exploded. I remember that evening, I believe, turning on the news after Michael Brown was killed, seeing the National Guard and seeing the tear gas and seeing police in riot gear. And I remember just kind of staring at my television and going, what is happening? Why, why is there, why does this look like a war zone? Why does this look like Baghdad? This is, you know, I had to even look up where is Ferguson, right? Nobody knew. I don't know if you knew, but I surely didn't know where Ferguson, Missouri I was. I definitely didn't know. No. The idea that came up was to do a freedom ride to Ferguson. 500 black folks, journalists and bloggers and medics, attorneys, organizers. And and then some folks are just people who have never been involved in activism before. When I arrived, people were exhausted and um, really traumatized. It's no small thing that people were having tear gas canisters thrown at them that folks were being chased by by police in riot gear with huge guns. It's, that's not a small thing, and that's not something that you shake off. I heard, I heard officers calling people on the street niggers. I saw officers wearing I am Darren Wilson wristbands. I saw officers snickering and laughing about the fact that a child was killed. Missouri was the last state to abolish slavery. You you can see that really clearly in the landscape of St. Louis in particular. The Klan is still active. St. Louis also has a long history of resistance, and you can see that too. So I spent, on and off, I spent about five and a half weeks in Ferguson. Most of what I spent my time doing was just building relationships with folks and, and learning about people and what they cared about and what they'd been going through. We were lifting up the voices of young folks in the community, of queer folks, um, of women. 
When I left St. Louis, I left with just a heart that was so full of all of the incredible work and commitment and dedication of folks there who, um, you know, are still fighting. Bob McCullough was the district attorney um, in the case of Michael Brown, who convened the grand jury around whether or not Darren Wilson would be indicted for murder. In Bob McCullough's career, he's never actually indicted an officer in an officer-involved shooting. We were all pretty clear that there was not going to be an indictment. We were preparing for that emotionally um, and also physically. We were in a planning meeting for a civil disobedience, and so it was a real different feeling than, than the way I felt when I was learning about the not guilty verdict in the case of George Zimmerman. I felt really confident that people weren't going to take it sitting down. What it looks like when the Black Lives Matter movement doesn't take something sitting down. Coming up after this, our second ad. That music means you are hearing a sponsored message on The Good Fight. When Alicia was growing up, she experienced both sides of California's huge rich-poor divide. Since then, the gap has widened even more. But for most of us, inequality is still pretty abstract. That's why Capital in Maine, a news site covering power and politics, is about to launch an amazing multimedia investigation into the culture and economics of inequality in California. It's called State of Inequality, and it'll feature work by over a dozen top reporters. We got one of them on the phone. My name's Maria Bustillas. I am a freelance journalist. Maria contributes to The New Yorker, Harper's, a bunch of places, and she's setting off on a statewide tour to look at inequality firsthand. So what makes you think there is inequality in California? <laughs> is this the part where I laugh? <laughs> <laughs> Is there a stop on your tour that you think is going to be especially interesting? I'm quite looking forward to investigating the Twitter loin as it has suddenly become called. The Twitter loin? Twitter apparently moved its headquarters recently to the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. If there's a starker illustration of this issue anywhere in California, I can't think of where it would be. It's like one of the poorest parts of the San Francisco area, and it's also Twitter's headquarters. What was the Tenderloin District like before? It used to be quite quite dangerous, you know. I'm familiar with that neighborhood as a place that you had to absolutely tear through at top speeds, you know. Because someone might tweet at you. (laughs) To see some amazing videos, articles, podcasts, cartoons, and infographics by Maria and all the other journalists and multimedia artists involved in the project, visit CapitalInMaine.com. That's capital with an A at the end, and Maine.com. Now, back to the story. Well, there were more protests today. This week's Ferguson, Missouri grand jury decision in the Michael Brown case is still causing people to react. Protesters shut down the West Oakland BART station for a while, causing major delays there. On November 28th, Black Friday, the biggest shopping day of the year, 14 activists in Oakland chained themselves to a subway train. 
Alicia was one of them. You could see the demonstrators here. They chained themselves to a BART train, linking arms right here, all chained up. We're talking about heavy-duty bike locks. And outside the station, other supporters, 100 or so, gathered and rallied. A sign was seen reading, Black Lives Matter. And eventually, Alicia and the other activists are now known as the Black Friday 14. If you've ever seen the hashtag, shut it down, this is what people are talking about. That protest was what they'd been planning on the day the grand jury decision came down. It was a response to the Darren Wilson jury decision. And it was just the most high profile in a hurricane of civil disobedience that swept the country. This is when Black Lives Matter burst into national consciousness because the activists made sure that it would. But as Alicia and others in the movement knew, that was only the beginning. But we also were waiting for the indictment in the case of Eric Garner. Eric Garner was the unarmed black man killed by police in Staten Island last July. There was one thing that was unique about his case. The whole thing was on video. I'm going to play the sound because it's important, but it's pretty intense. And if you don't want to hear it, skip ahead about 30 seconds. The entire world saw police officers attack Garner without any apparent provocation, then wrestle him to the ground and choke him as he repeatedly pleaded, I can't breathe. In the case of Eric Garner, there's no conflicting witness testimony. There are no questions at all, really. It's a different kind of case, which is why people thought it might have a different ending. There will be no indictment in the apparent chokehold death of Staten Island man Eric Garner. Well, were they looking at the same video that the rest of the world was looking at? It's a very painful day for so many New Yorkers. Garner can be heard repeatedly telling officers, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. The result in the Garner case was the same. No indictment for the officer responsible. But the reaction to it wasn't. This time, people who'd been on the sidelines or even on the opposite side suddenly sounded like the protesters. People like... Bill O'Reilly. I will say that upon seeing the video that you just saw and hearing Mr. Gardner say he could not breathe, I was extremely troubled. I would have loosened my grip. I desperately wish the officer would have done that. New York was a really interesting place because there were several police murders that had happened over the previous months, um, and folks were already organized around that. Um, Where we were seeing the slogans of I can't breathe, right, we were also seeing the slogans of Black Lives Matter, both in Ferguson, and we also saw it with um, Akai Gurley, and we saw it with Eric Garner. We saw it with John Crawford, right, who was murdered in Ohio, in Dayton, Ohio, um, at the Walmart. Um, We just kept seeing it over and over again. When we see a slogan like Black Lives Matter, we often see it being lifted up when people are trying to connect the epidemic of police violence to the crisis that's happening in their own communities. And it's a way of people in communities saying, like, this isn't this isn't some isolated local incident. This is about a national problem. Yeah. And it's also a way to de-individualize each case. Ferguson's not unique. Those kinds of murders happen all the time. In, in communities of color across the country, Ferguson is everywhere. And I know that to be true because Oscar Grant was murdered just a few blocks from my house um, in, on New Year's six years ago. So it's, it's very clear that, that the lives of black folks are not valued and that as long as we deny 
that that's a, a systemic issue. It's just going to keep happening over and over and over again. For especially the generation, you know, a genera folks a generation older than us, you hear this critique that the, the Black Lives Matter movement doesn't have the kind of clear demands and clear leaders that you know, earlier movements like the civil rights movement had. What's, when you hear that, what's your response mm -hmm. to that? When people romanticize how sharp and clear the civil rights movement was, um, it's really ahistorical, right? So if, if folks could say that five months into the civil rights movement that people were clear about the legislation they wanted to move and the policy that they wanted to move and they had the base to, that was organized to be able to do that, then they're not telling the truth right? There have been really clear demands that have come both from local communities and that have been directed nationally since August of last year. If you want to know where they are, um, you can visit fergusonaction.com. And under the demands section, there's a whole set of policy demands that folks have been coalesced around for months now. And I think that there's another dynamic, right, in which people are looking for the one leader to tell them exactly what to do, But I think what we've also seen is that that type of change is not long lasting. For example, what happens when, when that one leader is assassinated, like Malcolm X was or like Martin Luther King was? And then what happens when that leader is, is not solid in their commitment to making sure that the people at the margins are actually at the center? You know, we're drawn towards kind of isolating leaders as the leaders. And, and I would say, you know, that the best leaders are those who cultivate other leaders. Um, and, and who make sure that it's, it's not just about one person, right, but that it's about all of us and that we see potential in each of us to make the changes that we, that we feel like we need. For folks who would stand on the sidelines and critique, there's not a lot that we can do about that except to wish them well. I also feel like for people on the sidelines, they should just read some history, like right. about the civil rights movement. Right. Like <laughs> Some people look at Black Lives Matter and they want to change it to hashtag all lives matter. Oh, no, we don't do that. <laughs> What do they miss? What are those people missing? Of course, all lives matter. That's almost a given. Um, but it's also a utopia. We don't live in that world right now where all lives matter. It's not all lives that are being targeted by the police. It's black lives. Now, if it was also true that every 28 hours a white person was killed by police or vigilantes, not only would we see a whole different set of, of movement, right, in this country, but we wouldn't have to have this conversation about black lives. It's like a surgeon who's like, sees somebody who has a bullet wound saying, all body parts matter. Why is everyone so focused on shoulders? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, you know, there's been these really hilarious folks on Twitter who have been saying, you know, do you go to a cancer fundraiser and say there's other diseases too? No, we're focused on cancer right now, <laughs> right? The civil rights movement wasn't about all lives matter. It was about ending segregation. And it was about ending Jim Crow. And it was about making sure that everybody had access to democracy, not because all lives matter, but because black people couldn't vote. We certainly welcome any and all critiques of, of this movement, but we want those critiques to really be grounded in reality, right? And, and we shouldn't exercise selective amnesia. What we're saying is there are disparities and now what are we going to do about it? And that's a call to everyone to say all hands on deck. Let's make sure that all lives matter by fighting like hell right now for black lives.
was Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter and Special Projects Coordinator for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. If you visit fergusonaction.com, you can read a list of the movement's demands, which address the kinds of systemic racism that Alicia talked about. The demands include full employment, freedom from mass incarceration, and an end to police brutality. There's one more part to today's story, an update on what's happened to Alicia and the whole Black Friday 14 that were arrested for shutting down the BART train. But before we get to that, one more note about our Kickstarter campaign. The idea of the good fight, the reason for this show's existence, is to tell stories like this. It's to bring people inside movements that are actually fighting to change the world, to lift up voices of people who are in those fights on the front lines. I think that's something worth fighting for. If you agree, go to thegoodfight.fm slash KS and back this project on Kickstarter, and then post a message on Facebook explaining why you backed it, and tag your friends and family and ask them to donate too. We are grateful for every bit of help we can get, and I understand that not everyone's in a position to give, but anyone who's listening right now has the power to help spread the word. And I can tell you at a personal level, I really appreciate any help you can give us. Okay, enough Kickstarter. So after Alicia and her fellow activists shut down the BART station in Oakland, the managers estimated that the lost fares resulting from the protest cost $70,000. So along with the criminal charges that Alicia and the others faced, they were told to pay that amount in restitution. I'm here today to ask you, as directors, which side are you on? And I've been at this podium before, speaking on behalf of BART workers who are fighting... Shortly after we talked to Alicia, she appeared before the BART managers in a hearing about the case. How many times do we need to come before you to ask you to be on the right side? How long will it take for you to be on the right side? Drop the charges, not one dime. 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 dime. From the National Lawyers Guild, SEIU, There are also resolutions from the Berkeley City Council that we've submitted, and we've also submitted over 10,000 signatures asking you to drop the charges and to drop the demand, the extortion demand for restitution. As of today, when we're releasing this episode, it looks like there's a pretty good chance that BART will back away from the charges. I'm just saying, but I don't think they understand. Yeah, man, I'm just saying. But I don't think you understand. Real shit, I'm just saying. It's like nobody understands. Uh huh, I'm just saying. And hopes you will understand. This shit is bigger than Ferguson. So concludes episode 40 of The Good Fight. This episode, along with music credits and links to everything we've talked about, can be found at thegoodfight.fm slash 40. That's the number 40. Huge thanks to our team, associate producer Zach Young, executive producer Susan Davis, production coordinator Hottam Helmy. Thanks to our guest, Alicia Garza, to her co-founders of Black Lives Matter, and to everyone involved in this incredibly inspiring, leaderful movement. Let me just tell you, Alicia credited about 100 different people in the course of the interview. We had to take out their names for concision, but we are thinking of you with this episode, too. Thanks to hip-hop artist Joe Henson, whose song Black Lives Matter you heard at the end of this show. SoundCloud.com slash Mr. Joe Henson. That's M-R-J-O-E-H-E-N-S-O-N. And huge thanks to our founding sponsor and partner, MoveOn.org Political Action. 
If you liked this show after backing the project on Kickstarter, make sure to head over to iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice and hit subscribe. Thanks to We Act Radio 1480 AM in Washington, D.C. for airing us, to Progressive Congress in Washington, D.C. for hosting our studio, to Beth Wickler, my wife, to Mac Wickler, my son, to Susie Lynn, my daughter, who is due on February 17th. Oh, my God. And thanks to you, our amazing listeners. Email us, show at thegoodfight.fm. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Ben Wickler, thanking you for being part of The Good Fight. Good Fight.